This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Welcome back to the Liverpool Echoes Blood Red podcast. I'm Matt Addison with Paul Ghost and Theo Squires, both with me for today's show. Pre-season is, of course, underway. We'll be having a chat about that shortly. There's news of an extended shirt sponsorship agreement as well, plus the game with Crystal Palace to come on Friday. Hence why you're going to hear from us a day earlier in the week than usual. We've got all the content around the game, of course, tomorrow, but we thought it would be best to bring you the Blood Red show today. So we'll get stuck in Ghost Dealers. Some not so good news to start with. Diogo Jota has had a scan. He's picked up an injury in training on Wednesday. What's the sort of details that we know so far on him and how much of a blow do you think that is for him potentially? Well, to be honest, I think the person who's best placed to answer this one is Ian Doyle because he's out in Singapore with um, with the team and he was at the press conference this morning. Um, wasn't actually on any of the YouTube channels or anything like that. So, um, perhaps news that hasn't reached everyone really, but yeah, Diogo Jota has kind of, um, well, it's it, it suspected that he's potentially kind of hurt the hamstring that he was working on recovering. Um, so we'll have a scan on that and it will obviously reveal more and then Liverpool will be able to take it from there. So uh, we're a little bit un- unsure at the moment, but uh, it's not good news as however way you look at it. But um, it's a... It's a bit of a shame because he was looking to get back from that hamstring injury that he suffered on international duty with Portugal. Um, it was one of those injuries that I'd completely forgotten about until we were reminded of it one day last week, you know, where they're coming in the international pictures and sometimes you just tune out of it all, don't you, when it's um, when the national games are getting played. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's one that he will have had for well over a month now, which, which is a little bit frustrating for him, particularly when he's looking to get some some proper minutes under his belt for pre-season, really getting that solid schedule that puts the players in, in such a good stead for the coming season. So, yeah, it's a disappointing setback. But, I mean, I suppose on the other side of the coin, at least it's come now. Early in pre-season, they can rehab it and get it back to, to full strength as quickly as possible. And hopefully it shouldn't impact them being able to start the Premier League season in um, just under a month's time. But, um, yeah, it's a little bit disappointing for him because no doubt he will have been raring to go and, and looking to get back in the thick of it as he aims to, um, to what, rival Darwin Nunes, I guess, for Liverpool's number nine role and, and Roberto Firmino as well. So, um, yeah, a little bit of a frustrating few weeks for, for Jota, it looks like. Yeah, it was only, I think, on Monday that he was talking about how excited he was to, to come back. Obviously, wasn't going to play in the, the United game, but potentially could have played in the Palace game. Certainly won't be now. But I suppose that the key point, Theo, is like Gorsty says there, he's got Darwin Nunez there now. He's got Luis Diaz who plays in the other position that he can play in as well. It, it kind of felt like he probably could have done with an uninterrupted pre-season. He could have really done with that this summer to just kind of stake his claim and, and put himself into Jurgen Klopp's thinking for the start of this season. Yeah, it's a strange one with uh, Diogo Jota because you think it was only probably, what, January, February time where he was closing in on 20 goals. He'd fired Liverpool to a League Cup final and he was this go-to striker. He was the main man in this Liverpool front three when they lost uh, Salah and Mane to the Cup of Nations. And then they signed Diaz and he sort of lost his place in the team. I think he he got a couple of knocks as the season went on and he just wasn't as impactful in those final weeks as Liverpool went for a quadruple as he had been for the first two-thirds of the campaign. Um, we know how much he, he loves a goal, and he would have definitely wanted, as he said, been uh, firing him in early in pre-season to rival Nunes, rival Firmino, 
and stake his claim. Because I think, was it last few weeks of last season, he was more on the left and having his chance to play this central role. And you're thinking if Liverpool, now with this new target man up front, well, that's meaning more balls into the box in the air, which we know, despite his size, Josh is very good at getting them. the end of it. It could suit him even more. We know how much he loves following things up and getting rebounds and stuff like that. But then it's, well, if he's injured, well, there's no suggestion that it's anything serious at this point. They are just waiting for the scan results. There's still that reminder of what happened with Roberto Firmino last year when he got one hamstring injury and then that turned to two and then that turned to three and it just bugged him throughout the whole season. You think, well, if he had one... In June, he's out a month and then he gets a, a niggle now. If he's out for another month for the start of the season, uh, it's not how you want your preparations to go. Last year, Liverpool finished the season with about seven senior forwards where they had Mane, Origi, Minamino. But what I'm not saying the numbers are short. Uh, if Jota's absent, then there is limitations on those senior options there. It's one where they happen to go from so many professionals who have played international football and you can stake a claim to... If you lose a star player, you're relying on Carvalho or Harvey Elliott, Curtis Jones. They're not as proven in these front three positions in the Premier League. Um, it's a new situation for Liverpool. It's frustrating for Diogo Jota, but it's why Liverpool's gone and spent so much on Diaz. It's why they've gone and spent so much on Nunes. So they've got the elite options at least can start. Um, he's just going to have to be playing catch-up and you just hope no one else gets any knocks that Salah can fire in the goals against Palace, that Nunes can, that Firmino can put the injuries behind him and Diaz just continues to be as exciting as he has been ever since he first walked through the door. Yeah, Theo mentions Roberto Firmino there, Ghost. He's someone that I've written about this morning, actually, just off the back of, of that Jota news. It, it kind of feels like he's a bit of a, a forgotten man almost, if that's not too harsh a, a way to put it. But I suppose for, for him, if there is a little bit of an injury for the next couple of weeks for Diogo Jota, it just kind of goes to show really how quickly that pecking order can change. And someone like Firmino from kind of being fifth choice, there's maybe just a, a little bit more of a, a glimmer for him now to, to stake a bit of a claim over the next few weeks, regardless of how long Jota's out for. Yeah, I, I had the chance to head up to the Liverpool training ground last week, you know, as part of a pack to, to speak to Jürgen Klopp. And he was saying about almost the, the differences between Darwin Nunes and Roberto Firmino as a as a centre forward. Um, he said, does he want Nunes to play like Roberto Firmino? Not at all. So I think that the contrast in their playing styles um, gives Liverpool different options. Essentially, it's not necessarily a like-for-like, even though they're in the same position, aren't they? Um, he, he still refers to Firmino as a false nine, even though he, he's played as a you know, striker, essentially, for all of his Liverpool career now, hasn't he, which is coming up to, to seven years. So, um, yeah, I think I think it uh, probably does offer him a little bit of a chance. Klopp was effusive in his praise for how well he'd been playing in, in that week in pre-season. To be fair, it'd only been three or four days, I think. But um, he said that Bobby is back 100% and a world-class talent. And, of course, Klopp's always very... You know, he, he doesn't hesitate to talk up his players, does he, in terms of you know the, their contributions. But... I think it is, is a big season for Firmino. It's the first one that he's not heading into it as part of a first-choice front three. It's the first one that Liverpool go into in years that it's not Salah, Mane and Firmino in that front three. Jota kind of usurped them at, at a certain stage last season and Diaz came into the team in January, or rather the beginning of February. And now there's Nunes in there. You know, Liverpool have spent major money on him, so they're not expecting him to be a dud. So he's going to be looking to, to play more often than not. So... um yeah, for the first time in years, really, probably the first time in his Liverpool career, Firmino's heading into a pre-season, knowing that he might not necessarily be playing most weeks. So if that's a 
motivating factor for him, then so be it. That's only good news for Liverpool. But yeah, there's no busted flush for me. You know, he's um, he's never been, you know, Liverpool's most prolific forward during his time at the club, particularly since Mane and Salah have joined on over the years. But um, I still think uh, maybe one or two have kind of forgotten how good he can be, uh, and uh, you know, I hope that a full pre-season is uh, is key to him um, hitting the ground running when the season does eventually start. Yeah, had a few injuries, didn't he, last year? But when he did play, he did yeah. actually have a, a decent sort of scoring record in terms of the minutes that he played. Big year as well for him in the last year of his contract. But we'll see kind of what happens with that. Uh, let's move on to, to the standard chartered deal, Gorsty. I'll come back to, to you on this one in terms of, of just going through the details. We'll have a, a little yeah. bit of a chat around the sort of wider picture as well with FSG and, and the finances. But just in terms of the, the shirt sponsorship deal, what, what do we know from this morning? Yeah, so it's... Um... They've signed a, a new contract with Standard Chartered that'll take them up to 17 seasons as Liverpool's main shirt sponsor, which is uh, only one behind the uh, legendary name of Carlsberg, which you know I think we all grew up, didn't we, with, with Carlsberg being on the front of Liverpool shirts. Still obviously closely connected to the club, but yeah, Standard Chartered kind of the... Um, no, it's the logo of the FSG era, if you like, because it became in the 2010 and, and they've just you know flourished. So... Liverpool's existing deal, which was signed in 2018, um, is worth around £40 million per year to them. This one is a four-year, new four-year contract, which I believe begins to start the next season, and it's worth upwards of, of around about £50 million, so a significant jump um, in terms of what they were in, and 25%, obviously, which is a big increase, really. But I think, um, you know, <clears throat> I, I wrote a piece today. If you speak to anyone kind of in the FSG circle, I had a chance to speak to... Tom Werner just before the end of last season and, and Billy Hogan in, in the same week, the CEO and, and the chairman. And they both referenced this virtuous cycle. And it's something that the former CEO, Peter Moore, said to me in, you know, in previous conversations. This idea that success on the pitch leads to uh, further opportunities for growth off the pitch, which in turn leads for more money to continue the success on the pitch. So it's just this idea of, of feeding itself and continuing on. Um, and you know, in, a, in an area where Liverpool are battling against the absolute, you know, some of the absolute richest teams in, in world football, in City and, and um, Chelsea, and, and of course Manchester United, it's a it's a very big deal. It's Liverpool's biggest ever shared sponsorship deal. Um, absolutely no question of that. Um, I was looking at the the, the historical ones, and, and the first one with Hitachi was worth fifty thousand pound a year. It's incredible now when you think the word fifty million. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a it's good news for Liverpool. You know they're continuing on a, a very flourishing partnership, and ultimately, um, whilst you know to the to the everyday supporter who just want to see Liverpool winning on the pitch, it might not mean a whole lot. But um, sooner or later, it will be of benefit to Liverpool, whether that's increasing the um, salaries of players like Mohamed Salah or you know the the host of contracts he signed last year, or whether it's um, bringing new players to the club. Uh, ultimately, it is more money in the coffers for Liverpool and that has to be a good thing. Yeah, it's all interlinked, isn't it, Theo, in terms of the FSG model, the way that they've tried to to run Liverpool. As Gorsi says, the more sort of success Liverpool have on the pitch, that leads to off the pitch, it leads to on the pitch. It's just a cycle that you don't really want to, to ever see broken, do you? No, it's not. It's um, one way we, we've grown up when United have been the ones with all these record uh, sponsorship deals, either it's shirt providers or anything like this and you're looking at it going why, why can't Liverpool get those sorts of figures when they've been the dominant force in English and fo- European football for so long and it's just they 
fell off that top table just as all these sorts of figures were coming into it and football really took that next step and they missed out big time. It took them 20, 30 years to catch up again and now it's well, you're making up for lost time here. Now you are at the very top here. You can set the fees you want, get the deals you want and you should be the leading team, the leading brand in the market. Uh, success on the pitch will in turn get the, even more in terms of these deals, get more lucrative deals, getting a better choice of deals and it's just what you want to see. While it's not really something that you're going to be as happy talking about, like this, this ugly side to the ever-growing riches in football, at least it shows that Liverpool are moving in direction, that everything's ticking along nicely on the pitch and off it. And it's credit to what FSG have implemented since they bought the club, that they haven't just installed a manager and a sporting director and all these staff members to get it right with the players that can win the Premier League, win the Champions League. It's making sure that they're getting these best possible deals behind the scenes as well. So as Gorsty says, it helps them obviously with transfer fees, with contract negotiations. And when you're bought by this Liverpool team, FSG did, it would be to make them one of the very best teams in world football again. They've certainly delivered that. And sponsorship deals like this, when they're one of the leading ones in the market, it's definitely an example of that once again. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. The Manchester United comparison, actually, Gorsty, is, is an interesting one. Obviously, both of them in Asia at the moment played each other on Tuesday. It's a huge thing in terms of, of their brand, isn't it? And I've seen a lot of people actually over there. Maybe this is just sort of coming at it from a Liverpool perspective, maybe, but kind of saying that the Reds are now edging it over Manchester United in that region in terms of the number of fans and, and all of that kind of thing. And I suppose it's it's all part of that bigger picture, isn't it? This is what Liverpool have been working towards. There is that gap still to Manchester United, but they're certainly on the right pathway to closing that. Yeah, it might be a kind of uncomfortable truth that some people don't want to confront, but Liverpool and Manchester United... Uh, very very similar and I've got a you know a good working relationship certainly off the pitch both owned by American owners and are both kind of I suppose threatened is 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 the word if, if I can't think of a, of a better one in terms of the growth of Manchester City's project and Chelsea's over the last 20 years you know United and Liverpool were the established order weren't they in, in the 80s and, and the 90s and um, Chelsea and City very much alongside them now in terms of um, growth. I don't think City are anywhere near the Liverpool and United in terms of fan base or, or worldwide appeal. But certainly, you know, from a, a monetary position, City is as strong as anyone else. So uh, Liverpool have worked closely with United to to ensure that there was that glamorous all singing, all dancing friendly in, in Thailand on uh, what was it Tuesday. Um, both looking to kind of grow in, in that market this summer and. Uh, by all accounts, seems to be doing it quite well. Um, ultimately, success on the pitch is what leads to more kind of eyeballs on on your brand, isn't it? And Liverpool, since he last visited um, the Far East, they've gone from being a team who just qualified for the Champions League, the top four, on the last day of the season, to a team that have won the absolute lot since. So um, you know that's only going to grow their their fan base in those areas, uh, areas across the world. Really, you see now. You know, you, you, everywhere you go, you, you bump into a Liverpool fan. So, um, at the moment, Liverpool and United, you know, undoubtedly still the two biggest clubs in England. Um, probably still in the top five in terms of world football, despite United's regression over the last about four or five years. But, um, yeah, two clubs who um, who've been working together really, you know, for some time to to make sure that there are these um, these, these money spending friendlies in the. Um, 
in the diary. Um, obviously, it didn't go to, didn't go to Liverpool's plan on the pitch, but ultimately, that trip to, to uh, Thailand is one that um, will be hugely beneficial down the line, and um, so will the one in Singapore now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a few more details on the, the bottom line podcast that came out, I think, a couple of days ago. So if anyone's interested in diving into that, Dave Powell had a chat with Guy Clark, so you can go back and, and have a listen through that podcast. But two players, Theo, who wear standard chartered on the front of their shirts for the first time next season. A seamless link there towards Darwin Nunez and Fabio Cavallio. Let's start with Darwin Nunez. I know it's only been a couple of days, particularly for, for him, but he's come in a big price tag. Any sort of early impressions or, or anything that you've spotted with him so far or is it just too early in his Liverpool career? Uh, despite what I'm sure plenty of fan sites and opposition will have you think, it's far too early to say. Uh, news now was a, an interesting state along with social media, shall we say, after that missed chance against Manchester United. But it's early days, like you can't really take much out of that United friendly when you look at Liverpool treating it as something of a getting minutes in the legs, getting fitness levels up, those three 30-minute sides of putting legs together. But for Nunes, there were early promising signs, at least, like linking up with uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold, making those, I suppose, diagonal runs with balls over the top that we've not really seen Liverpool do to that extent before, showing that they are implementing this new take on attacking for style to make them unpredictable. He was getting in the box. He was making himself a nuisance. Yeah, there was a bit of rustiness there, but that's always going to be the case when it's coming the first game of pre-season. You've only been training with the, the squad for a couple of days, having linked up um, a week after everyone else, along with the rest of the internationals. Still had a, a good shot that Tom Heaton kept out. He was a bit of a nuisance, but you're not going to be judging whether Darwin Nunes is a, an £85 million player off half an hour against Manchester United in what mid-July in Thailand. You're going to be judging it on what he achieves over the season. Um, you're not bothered if he scores or not against United now. You're bothered if he goes and does it at Old Trafford in August, September time. That's when you can start to really judge him. Now it's just about getting the fitness in the legs and seeing the, the start of those blossoming relationships on the pitch with the likes of Salah and Trent. Early signs, yeah, it's a step in the right direction. Not much else you can say, really. Yeah, no, exactly. And I suppose it's a little bit similar for Cavallio as well. Gorsty been in pre-season for a little bit longer. Lots of people getting excited about his performance. But as much as there were positive things, I'm sure there's still plenty more to come from him throughout the rest of this summer. Yeah, I mean, it's it's understandable why people look to make big conclusions from small sample sizes in pre-season. They haven't seen Liverpool in action for five or six weeks and you know, excited to see new players in, in the team and whatever else. But, um, you know, good, bad or indifferent, you know, you, you'd hesitate to make any kind of definitive um, point of view, certainly from one friendly, but from an entire pre-season schedule, really. You know, we've seen Liverpool you know, generally um, in the past get beat every single pre-season friendly pretty much. And then as soon as the season starts, they turn it on and they're still the team that we all remember. Um, I remember one... Was it the season after they won the Champions League? I think they didn't win a game. I think they drew one and, and the rest they, they lost. Um, I think they drew with Sevilla, possibly, and they were beaten by Dortmund, Napoli. And... Sporting yeah, they got battered in um, yeah. Edinburgh, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then they went and won the Premier League by 18 points and probably would have been closer to 30 had there not been for the, the strange you know, COVID season. But, um, yeah, it's, it's as Theo says, it's all just about fitness in the legs. Um, the coaching staff take take over at this time of the year, don't they? And um, 
for me, it's the, the preseason really picks up once you get into the European leg of it when Klopp can shake off all the commercial, um, you know, things that are in the diary and he can just get to work with his players, tight knit <clears throat> kind of community. There's there's no press allowed and there's nothing, no extracurricular things that are that are getting in the way of just you know double sessions and team bonding. That's when you start to see it all really take shape. Um, so yeah, it was um, a really disappointing game on Tuesday, certainly for the fans who were there who paid an arm and a leg to get there as well. Um, but um, you know. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter, does it? You know, that's um, it's all full steam ahead towards Fulham on August the fifth or the sixth or whatever it is. So, yeah, absolutely no no issues at all with with with, with anyone's performance, really. Um, not least Darwin Nunes, who was given half an hour up top. I'm sure um, we'll see the best of him further down the line. Yeah, I'd happily sure we'll take four um, nil defeats to United in pre-season if you beat yeah. him. 5 0 and 4 0 in the Premier League, and exactly. just to add on to the whether you judge him in pre season, I seem to remember Dominic Solanke and Andre Vorning being quite, quite prolific in pre season. It's hardly something you can judge their Liverpool careers on, didn't really do that when it got serious. But then Fabio Carvalho, same time, he looked exciting, just getting forward, linking up well, already at blossoming partnership with Luis Diaz. He was unlucky not to score, really good technique when he put the ball down in his chest. and whacked it against the post, as bad as a defeat it looks on paper, 4-0. Four defensive errors, really, that cost Liverpool. They could have scored four themselves. They created enough chances. And it's one where, say, um, Carvalho's uh, shot nestles in the bottom corner, Nunez's rebound is below the crossbar. Liverpool lose 4-2, but they've got the fitness. They've got those two goals. Everyone's happy as you can be for a defeat against United. It's just those small margins. And as Liverpool are a team that have lost Premier League titles and Champions League titles by small margins, you're not bothered when it's pre-season. Yeah, I know Jurgen Klopp says there's no threat, such thing as a friendly against Manchester United. But that's why you don't normally have it as your very first first friendly. So you get the, the defeat out the way against someone daft early on and then you find a bit of rhythm. But yeah, it's just the fitness. They've pulled that shirt on for the first time. They've seen some fans over there. Um, but Crystal Palace, that's going to be another weird friendly when they don't have many senior players out as well. So, as Gorst just said, you're just waiting for them to get back to Europe when they're playing Leipzig, when they're playing Salzburg, Strasbourg, Man City. That's when you can start to have a really true first impression of it all. Yeah, absolutely. Ryan Brewster, another one that was prolific in yeah, pre-season. Exactly. Didn't last much longer <laughs> after that. So, yeah, can't can't draw too many conclusions. Let's just talk a little bit around Crystal Palace tomorrow. Again, not not many conclusions that we can expect to be drawn from it, Gorsty. But how similar are you expecting it to be in terms of the United game? I think it was, what, 32 different players that we saw play in that one. Do you reckon it's going to be something similar again? Uh, yeah, I do. I think that'll that'll start to steadily decrease um, as we get nearer and nearer to the season. But st- with it still being the second game of the season, um, still in the kind of similar climate to the one they were in in Bangkok in terms of you don't want to give anyone 60, 70, 80 minutes to you in that kind of humidity. I still think it'll be similar. Um, we're not sure if Allison's going to be involved, are we? Because <clears throat> he's apparently suffered some discomfort at <clears throat> Jota. Not expecting him to be involved, but generally, I think it will be a similar situation of sweeping changes on the 30, the 60, um, and maybe one or two at half time as well. So, yeah, I, th- I think it will be more of the same, really. Um, I mean, it, 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 it just shows you kind of clops, you know, when Klopp says, um, he's open to being surprised, and 
being you know open to everyone catching his eye he means it doesn't he because there doesn't appear to be any great value in giving Luke Chambers too much time for example you know Isaac Mavea you don't want to be you know you're not expecting them to be anywhere near the Premier League team when it starts in August but the fact that Klopp's giving everyone a go shows you that, that he is committed to seeing if there is a little hidden gem that's somewhere that he hasn't quite stumbled across yet or, or he can see something he, that he can work with so yeah, it was it was difficult keeping keeping uh, track of the changes and the team sheets and whatever else the other day. But yeah, I'm expecting once again there to be plenty of changes to the Liverpool eleven in that game against Palace. Yeah, invaluable for Luke Chambers and Bobby Clark and Stefan Bicetic and all of those young players. I'm sure they took a great deal from it. Theo, who are you who are you most looking forward to to seeing a little bit more of tomorrow? Is it the new signings, the young players, bit of a mixture, or? What are your thoughts heading into that one? Um, I guess it's the new signings again, isn't it? Those are the ones you, you don't know anything about. And well, it's good to see the kids getting their involvement, getting some minutes. When they're involved, it's more about giving them that first taste. Like, you know, it's probably a step too far for them at this stage, but it's about learning from the senior pros, seeing how they handle this sort of tour, uh, seeing how big the club is in like the far corners of the world. So they really have this eye-opening experience. And then they'll go back to um, Barry Lutus's side and the under-18s and they'll work there and then have to work up to this stage again. So it's really looking at the players that you know are actually going to be part of this first team uh, for the season in the opening weeks at least. And it is the Fabio Carvalho. He was the shining light against United, but you want to see more from uh, Harvey Elliott. These players that were a bit unfortunate last year because of injuries or whatever, who showed glimpses, you want to see someone that can make a difference to the starting eleven and show Liverpool adapting and progressing forward again. Um, I think everyone we're always excited when you see Luis Diaz step take, step foot on the pitch. He's just such an exciting player, makes things happen out of nothing. But then, as the case of most of this squad, you know what to expect for them. It's just Jurgen Klopp working with them again and trying to get them to reach this new standard. So it's just going to have to be <laughs> new faces. Not much else you can really uh, take from it. You're not expecting as good a performance as any of the youngsters could have. You're not expecting Bobby Clark to be a false nine against Fulham on the opening day of the season or anything like that. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, let's finish off then with a little bit of a, a random topic to throw in. Not many transfer sort of stories to get into with Liverpool, but certainly a few other teams around the Premier League doing a fair bit of business. Gorsty Raheem Sterling to Chelsea. It's an interesting mm. one. It, it seems like a really good signing to me, and I, I can't quite work out why City have let him go there. To be honest, I mean, the, the way the way football is now at the moment, um, there's there's only so many teams who can afford a, a top Premier League player, and um, that pool is, is dwindling. So, um, if there are not many buyers, and and you need to raise your money to to balance the FFP books or whatever it may be. I suppose you're at the mercy of, of who the buyers are. So um, in an ideal world, I don't think City would have loved to have sent Raheem Sterling to Chelsea. I think they would have preferred him to have gone somewhere out of sight and out of mind, like around Madrid, for example. But um, that, that's just what clubs are at the mercy of at the moment. So I think in, in the next few years, um, I think we're going to see a lot more of these types of transfers, to be honest, between big clubs in, in the Premier League. Um just because of, of the what about line there? I mean, we've seen Sadio Mane go to to Bayern Munich this summer, but even for them, that that's a deal that's 
quite pricey for, for Bayern Munich. They, they don't tend to make loads and loads of, of signs of, of that kind of 40 million mark, 40 million, you know, over it. Um, Barcelona are difficult to second guess what they're going to be doing at the moment, isn't it? Real Madrid don't seem to be. I mean, he's just bought already and too many for quite quite a high price, but they're not they're not spending two hundred million every summer like they used to in years gone by. So, um, I suppose on one hand, it was a little bit surprising that City have allowed it, but maybe it also hints that the um, status of where they find themselves at the moment and where Chelsea find themselves, maybe they just think they're not they're not going to be challenging us certainly next season anyway. So. Off he goes, and we can we can use that money elsewhere. It's it's almost it's almost. I mean, if they got more for Sterling than than they, they bought Haaland for, there's not much in it either way, is there? I know Haaland was a 51 million bio clause. So, um, in terms of that, it's it's very good business for for City, isn't it? Um, but Sterling still he's only 27, so he's he's still going to be one of the main men for Chelsea next season. Um, so it was an interesting one, but I think. It's going to become a, a bit of a trend, to be honest. Yeah, certainly to something to, to keep an eye on. I think over the next couple of, of seasons, just in terms of the kind of pecking order at the top of the Premier League, Theo. I mean, where do you sort of see Chelsea next season? Tottenham in there as well. They've spent a fair bit of money. I'm not quite convinced as as some people are on on Tottenham signings. I have to be honest, but is it just going to be Liverpool and City again next season, or can you see either of those teams with the business that they've done coming anywhere near the top two? Um, depends how these new signings settle in, isn't it? Like if um, Man City, even if Erling Haaland flops or gets injured, they showed last year they can win the title without a striker. So you're looking them more how they cope without the as much depth behind those players, having lost Jesus and Sterling. But they're still a very good starting eleven there. Liverpool, well, you're looking to see how well Nunes settles if Salah can get back to that form of 2021. But those are still the runaway sides. Those are the two you expect to be the big two, and that's not going to change anytime soon. With Chelsea and Spurs, it's interesting because you'd say on paper at the moment, Spurs have got the edge. And I know you've just ripped them off there yourself, Matt. Um, in these signings, normally you'd say Spurs are going to Spurs it. But in Antonio Conte, they have got a genuinely world-class manager who can make the difference, who can take him to that next level. I'm not going to quite predict that he's going to have a, a clop effect over in North London, but he can make them a team that's going to be in the Champions League every single year and who knows might actually get them a trophy um they've got some they've already had good defenders good attackers they they did well against the big six last year um essentially they, they could have cost man city the title but they cost liverpool the title by getting those two draws and now you throw it in richarlison Basuma, uh perisic then they got some good signings there that is at least making their top four place look a hell of a lot more certain um, Chelsea, sorry, they need to do a bit more, but it's a good start for them. Sterling, as you said, is a really good signing. Um, they've lost Lukaku, but it's not as though him as a main striker did much for him or as much as they'd like last year. Maybe still need a couple of defenders, but they get Koulibaly in, which looks likely. Um, they've got another defender. You're going to have to point me out in the right direction. They're completely blanked, but they're, they're still, they've got that money to spend and they're investing. Arsenal has done a bit, decent bit of business as well, so you think they'd be fifth. The only thing you can say at the moment, despite being a full 4-0, is United still look a little bit off the pace. Um, but big six are always going to be the big six. They're the teams with the money. They're the teams that can go and sign all these talents. I think United are still getting Martinez and De Jong today, apparently, if you read the reports. But yeah, Liverpool and City, they are the two. 
Chelsea and Spurs maybe close the gap a little bit, but not enough to uh, change that pecking order just yet. Yeah, no, I certainly think Tottenham will be in the top four, but I'm not quite sure that spending £60 million on Richarlison was the most wisest thing to have done with that money, to be honest. Gorsty, are you any different? Are you any more convinced by Tottenham than I am? Or are Chelsea still the ones to watch in terms of that third best team? I, I, th- I think it'll be a, a direct shootout between those two, to be honest, um, to finish third. Um, and I know it, uh, at some point you might Chelsea might go top of the league in, in you know October or something, and, and all of a sudden it's talk of a, of a title race and a title challenge, and it's the top three. And I suppose we're, we're all guilty of it. But um, where did he finish last season in terms of amount of points? Was it 19 points behind Manchester City, something like that? Um, the the gap now be, the, between that top two and, and the rest is just incredible because. I suppose I suppose they're kind of spared on by each other really because Liverpool from January onwards knew that they couldn't really drop a point, um, and ultimately it was a draw with with Tottenham, which is which is cost them. Um, I, I say cost them in a kind of broad sense because I don't think anyone ever really expected Liverpool to overhaul that gap when it was sitting at 13, 14 points in mid January. Uh, they did incredibly well to get as close as they did, but. Um, yeah, I just think the top two are, are, are far too well coached and well managed, um, well drilled. We've got world class players in pretty much every position, and it's a huge task for the rest of them to, to kind of get near that level. Uh, so I think Tottenham might give Chelsea a little bit of a run for that for that third spot. I, I still think United are, are some way off in terms of the, the makeup of their squad, even if Ten Hag is all that he's cracked up to be. You know. He's got a massive job ahead of him, particularly if they lose Ronaldo and need to bring in another striker. Um, so yeah, it's just—I mean, I'm reluctant to make you know big sweeping predictions so early on, but it's going to be Liverpool or City again, isn't it? Yeah, the big difference certainly. is that with Liverpool and City, they're only making these small additions to what they've already had. They've had the success in recent years, and it's just we'll make that small tweak by bringing in a new striker. All of have got Ramsey as this backup right back. What they've already got there has already been built and delivered success in recent years. Whereas Chelsea, Spurs, United, it's we've fallen short yet again. We need to revamp this, bring in, throw in half a dozen players at it, completely change how we do things. Some obviously a lot more than others, but they are having to gamble and hoping that they can make a huge leaps and bounds with one or two right signings realistically it takes longer than that we know it takes longer than that from seeing Klopp have to build Liverpool up over three four year period before he can make them these consistent challenges that's why until one of them can take that big step as Liverpool did in 18-19 when they were signing Fabinho, Alisson, Keita, Shakiri. that's the sort of window you need that success off it to go and win the Champions League or the Premier League uh, it's just going to be the runaway front too. The, the interesting thing for me uh, sorry Matt it's just kind All of right. When when the you know BBC did the, the you know the predictions and the and they asked was it like twenty five pundits and former professionals and the amount of uh, the amount of people who who should know better you know people who've been studying around the game for all of their lives essentially and the the, the recency bias of the transfers the, the cloud the minds right? you know what was it who was it who picked Liverpool to, to finish fifth. Yeah, no no one had no one had Liverpool to, to finish. I mean, not many had Liverpool to finish second, probably even fewer had them to, to finish in the league ahead of City. It's it's just 
the, the transfers take so much of the attention like when, when the big sizable transfers and, and that's going to happen again because Chelsea are on a bit of a mission this summer under the new owner they've just brought in Sterling they're trying to get you know Khaled Koulibaly and they're getting linked to everyone at the moment aren't they because apparently Todd Bowley if you, if you believe what you're reading is kind of just on a mission just to see who we can bring in so Chelsea are going to make continue to make eye-catching signings and a new watch when the predictions come in the first week of August how many people will just kind of forget that Liverpool are, are a team who've recorded points tallies of 92 and upwards in three of the last four seasons it'll all just get forgotten because Chelsea have made a few big money signings and oh they've spent money they're going to be challenging they won't it's going to be Liverpool and it's going to be Manchester City and, and it could go either way you know you can't make a definitive call either way on it it's going to be fascinating to watch again but um, you know, I'd imagine if Manchester United start spending a few quid it's, it, they're going to be getting mentioned and it's just, come on like just what <laughs> I don't know maybe it's just me being grumpy and old but <laughs> it's just the amount of um, opinions that get swayed by Incomings is just it just never ceases to amaze you really. I suppose the better you are, the, the less you have to make in the transfer market, which is why Liverpool have done so well in the last few years. Um you only signed oh, I mean if you look at it the last two seasons you've only really signed two first team players, haven't they? Um Diaz and Andy Ibrahim and Canate. Um won the league after signing Andy Lonigan. Don't need to sign players. Go. But yeah, won, won the Champions League, didn't he? And then didn't really sign anyone. Brought in Harvey Elliott and Seth Vandenberg and Adrian and then went and won the league out of Canter. So, um, yeah, it's it's like the actual football is just ignored because teams have made a few big transfers when the predictions come around. Um, but if you're asking me now, in the middle of July, it's, I'm saying it's going to be Manchester City or Liverpool in first spot uh, come May 2023. Yeah, totally agree. The idea that Liverpool could finish third with no centre-backs and then regress with centre-backs was always a slightly bizarre one. But I think that'll just about do us for today's podcast. As I mentioned earlier on, we'll have a live offering for you after Liverpool play Crystal Palace tomorrow. Loads more to come across the weekend as well as Liverpool come back to Europe, playing Leipzig next week, Red Bull Salzburg the week afterwards, all the build-up and all the reaction around all of those things in all of the usual places. But now, though, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.